Hey, everybody. Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damien Pizzanti, and it is just me, the one and only Damien Pizzanti, behind the microphone today. You know, I have to say, I'm a little self-conscious about how I introduce this show now because one of my coworkers that was listening to it the other day said, you start this show saying the exact same thing every single time. She's not wrong. I do. I say the same intro. I could probably say it in my sleep or in a coma. Um, I wouldn't know if I was actually saying it in my sleep or in a coma for that matter, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, um, so this week it is another fun-filled, interesting, and I'd like to say, I'd like to think intriguing episode of Clark Talks. We are going to have a conversation about Clark County's plan to put some more resources into its indigent defense system. So, you know, basically, if you're too poor to represent yourself in court, an attorney will be appointed to you. And we're going to have a conversation with a local defense attorney about that. It's mostly going to be Jake Thomas, the politics reporter, that is going to be covering that conversation. But you'll hear me in there a little bit. And then following that, Katie and I are going to sit down with Anne McInerney-Ogle, who is um, running to be the new mayor of Vancouver. And as a matter of fact, we wanted to have a conversation with her, um, with her opponent in the race, uh, Stephen Cox, but he did not want to, he, he respectfully declined our invitation to sit down and talk. So I really don't like giving you just one voice in a uh, two-person race, in a race for any election, but that's what we're up against this time. Maybe we'll try to get him on in a later episode. I hope so, but if not, that's just how it goes. Anyway, we are going to um, then wrap this show up with Ashley Swanson, who's going to give you a lowdown on things coming up over the next two weekends, and unfortunately, this will be the last time we hear from Ashley. Sad face. On this this episode of Clark Talks, we have uh, Jeff Barra. He's the owner of Vancouver Defenders. He's the uh, you, you have the only contract for uh, misdemeanor cases with the city of Vancouver, right? We do. Right. And so we brought him on today because the county is considering a reorganization of its uh, of how it manages public defense. So in Washington and the United States, you're in guaranteed the right to a lawyer if you're accused of a serious misdemeanor or a crime. And that costs money. That cost means you have to pay, the taxpayers have to fork over money for a lawyer. And the county is considering reorganizing, reorganizing its Office of Indigent Defense to add two full-time staff lawyers and one part-time staff lawyer to keep up with the caseload. So we, we brought Jeff on the program to, to get his thoughts on this program and just kind of the state of public defense in Clark County. So Jeff, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, so I was hoping we could just start with your background. Just how did you, you said you're from Rhode Island. How did you get all the way over here to Vancouver? Uh, I graduated from UMass in 1977. I had a buddy out in Tahoe that had a, said there were a bunch of jobs. Uh, bought a van and drove out to Tahoe. Uh, wound up getting a teaching job in Tahoe. Taught there for all of my 20s. Uh, turned 30 and uh, decided I wanted to go to law school. I always wanted to try it. Took the LSAT, did pretty good, got accepted, came up to Lewis and Clark, and uh, just kind of stayed in the Portland area since then. That was 1985 I started law school. Okay. And so you, with Vancouver Defenders, you handle, if I'm not mistaken, you handle all the mis- serious misdemeanor cases that are that are people are charged within the, the city limits of Vancouver, right? We handle everything from uh, murder one down to assaults and, and shoplifts. 
Okay. And those are those all uh, indigent defense, or, is, or do you also do private? We do private as well. Okay, private as well. Yeah. So how did you end up doing um, public defense work for the city of Vancouver? Uh, when I was in law school, I worked as a bailiff for Judge Morgan uh, in the Clark County Superior Court in 86 to 88. And when I graduated from law school, I went to work in the prosecutor's office. I worked there for four years under uh, Art Curtis hired me. In 1992, I went out on my own. Uh, at the time, just like it is now, you could you could uh, bid for X number of felony points, and I, I bid on a small contract and uh, enjoyed it and, and kind of built the business around that. And so the felony points, it's the the county and the city they put out these contracts for uh, for for indigent defense, and the the point system is just how serious the crime is, right? Or how complex the case is? Well, you know, a, a point is just a way to measure a unit of work. Right. Uh, so basically, uh, you get X number of points for a Class A felony, B felony, C felony, and then gross misdemeanor and a misdemeanor. So depending upon the complexity of the legal work, the pay increases uh, proportionally. Okay, so let's let's get to the so later this week uh, the 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 county's gonna have a work session on the proposed reorganization of its indigent defense office and they might take some action on on it later this year or who knows or maybe they'll drop it who knows, but I just want to get your thoughts on this idea. Does it make sense to have an in-house public defender wi- at the county level or at the city level or any government level? Should it be contracted out or how how would you divide, de- design a public defense system? I could not be more in support of a public defender's office. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something I've advocated for since day one. Uh, it's the only way that you can have a level playing field. Uh, the only way that you can truly have a level playing field is with, is with uh, equal funding uh, on both sides of uh, both teams. It's basically shirts and skins. And you can't fund one team to the tune of two times more the other team and expect them to be competitive. And the only way you're going to have a, a system that truly satisfies what it's supposed to do is to fund both sides equally. Are, currently, are they, would you say they're funded equally now? Or no, I think, I think right now it's probably 50 cents on a dollar. Really? 50 cents on the dollar? For, I, for I every think, dollar spent on prosecution, it's 50 cents on And I think that's maybe generous, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I think this is... This is not an issue that is just solely affecting like Clark County or even in Washington State in general, right? Like public defense around the country is just there. It's like a woefully common that there is just not enough money in the system to defend people or to get people attorneys who aren't able to pay for it themselves, right? I mean, I, I, was, I, I, don't, I don't buy that at all. I think if there's enough money to prosecute, and like enough money to, what I these mean, are the same tax dollars that everybody has. Sure, Why I guess what I'm saying is there's not enough money going towards it oh, okay. to make the defense. Not that there's not enough money out there in general, but that there's not enough money, not enough resources put into making those defenses. Sure, because it's not a priority for the people making those decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is my opinion. Gotcha. What do you mean by that? Well, I think I, I think it's not a popular position. It's not anything that's going to. Uh, 
get you a lot of positive feedback. <laughs> a good buddy of mine's a public defender up in uh, Port Townsend, and one of their attorneys just left the firm so he could go be a prosecutor, and not necessarily because he wants to be, but uh, because he was thinking, he's thinking about making a move into politics later on. And what he told me when we were hanging out the other day, he was like, well, you know, you really can't run for, uh, it's, it's hard to run for office as a public defender and championing all the, you know, child sex abuse cases that you worked on or the uh, d- drunken driving cases that you worked on. It just, it doesn't look that, it's not, it's not glamorous work to be doing. It's not. And nobody respects the work you do until it's there baking in the fire. And when you get accused of a crime that you didn't do or to the extent that they say you did it and nobody's there to argue on your behalf then you're going to see the importance of it. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you about this idea of, of creating some in-house public defenders at the county office. Is um, the, the the proposal is supposed to be equal to uh, they're supposed to be paid in, uh, the same as prosecuting attorneys? Is that good enough? To just have them paid the same? Well, that would be great if they were paid the same. I, I don't I don't think you could ask any more. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Why not? Well, when you look at the economics of it, basically the most that an attorney can do felonies is 150 felonies a year. Uh, with the with the contract structure the way it is, uh, each each felony is worth about a thousand dollars. So you're generating 150 thousand dollars per attorney. If you're paying the attorney a hundred thousand dollars salary, which is what people in the prosecutor's office after seven, eight years are making. You also have to tack on to that taxes, you know, your employment taxes, then you have to throw a retirement on that, you have to throw benefits on that, and on top of that you throw office space, uh, bar dues, uh, uh, you know, malpractice insurance, everything. There's no way that you can do that for $150,000 and truly pay all the costs associated with it. Now maybe if you had free rent, uh, maybe if you were not uh, uh, adding in the cost of, of, of office furniture and computers, and, and I mean, it cost me 100 bucks per, per month per attorney just to have uh, Lexus. Uh, so, you know, those, those little expenses add up. So I, I, I just don't think you can, you can do it on that budget. And you mean Lexus Nexus, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, not Lexus the car, in case you guys listening to this didn't know what that was. You can't be an attorney without a Lexus. It's, uh, well, well, how Lexus, do you, okay. <laughs> well, if, it, if it's not enough money, um, I mean, how do you make it under the current structure? How do you make it work currently? You've been doing this for a while. Are there? How do you just make this work? Our structure basically is that each attorney has to handle X number of cases per year uh, for a salary. And they all have the option of uh, generating privately retained work, of which they get a significant proportion of that. So they have a base pay, and then they have no cap on what they can do for for retained work. So if they want to hustle and get out there and and, uh, generate their own practice, they can make a significant amount of money. Uh, What we do is we, for every retained case that they get, we subtract that from their contract work so that you keep your caseload and balance, so you can't take a full caseload of indigent work and a full caseload of private work. You have to be proportionate. Does that make sense? Well, well, how? Well, I guess what I'm wondering is how do you make sure that your your attorneys aren't prioritizing one set of work over the other? I won't let them do that. 
You want them to do that? So it's just you're just monitoring it and making sure that that, that it's the case work is being done. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about something off mic just a minute ago that I was hoping we could revisit that you said that I thought was pretty interesting about how um, when you're talking about the funding that is out there for public defense and uh, the prosecutor's office in general, and you see, you seem to allude to this idea that um, like realistically there should be as much money put into public defense as there is put into prosecution. Um, I have to imagine that would be a probably a pretty dramatic shift in like our priorities of the legal system that we have right now. If you truly want to design a legal system that satisfies what it's supposed to do, mm-hmm. which is to have a level playing field where before we take away somebody's freedom, we're not talking about taking away money. We're not. We're talking about putting people in jail. Before you put them in jail, you have to give them a fair trial. And a fair trial has to mean more than just lip service. And I cannot think of any better place to start with seeing if it's fair is to look at the money we spend on the prosecution versus the money we spend on defense. And if there's a great disparity, which there is here, it's not fair. I can't be any simpler than that. Um, so I'm wondering with this proposal to reorganize the county's Office of Indigent Defense and have two staff lawyers uh, to take maybe some more high-profile cases and also to just kind of be a cushion for when there's a lot of um, when there's a lot of when there's a high caseload. Um, what um, I mean, would that that cut into your workload having these other attorneys, or would it would it complement, or would it be competition? It's not competition. It would not cut into our workload. It's probably a step in a positive direction. Uh, I, I, I applaud uh, the effort, and, but I truly want to see, from my own personal perspective, it be a step towards a full public defender's office where there is parity of resources uh, and each side is able to uh, work to the best of their abilities not one side have to work within a budget and the other side not. Do we have that currently where one side has a budget and one side ha- is not? Well, I, I think clearly more money is spent on prosecution and defense. Um, well, if you're going to design a public defense system from scratch, how would you do it? Would you just have it have it a government office run defense as well? Or would you, how would you design it to, to be a really fair system? You know that's that, that's something that we could pro- we could probably talk about uh, you know over several pints for for a long time. Basically, it, it has to be an independent entity. Uh, you know, the key thing is you can't have people talk about setting up a public defender's office and consult the prosecutor and the sheriff and, and you know other county officials and leave indigent defense attorneys on the outside looking in. It's like you guys go wait outside and the adults will make decisions. You have to bring us to the table. If if you're talking about including a historically disenfranchised group of people and not including them in the discussion on how to set it up, I think think you're making a mistake. And I think that's what they're doing here. Um, So so what what could they, how would, what would that look like to have you at the table? Would it be, have they reached out to you? Have they reached out to public defenders in, in the area or? Uh, nobody from the county has reached out to me. 
No, no one. So you haven't heard anyone who's asked you to to. Sub, I mean, have you reached out to them though? No. Okay. Um, I mean, how do you think this is going to go with? Uh, uh, this is supposed to be budget neutral. There's a lot of budget hawks on the county council. Do you think that this this idea could be budget neutral? Well, what's you mean budget neutral? Leave the budget where it's at right yeah, now. Yeah, leave the budget, not add to it or subtract to it, but hire new attorneys in a way that's that that's budget neutral. I think the way they're doing it is probably the only way that they could do it is to take all the cases that historically. What you have to look at, the cases they're talking about taking are the cases where they pay an hourly rate. Now, now some cases pay a, pay a flat rate per case. Other cases pay an hourly rate, such as uh, uh, homicides. Uh, and, and the worst case is an aggravated murder case where the state is seeking a death penalty. The costs on that could be astronomical. I think what I think, I don't know because I, I, all I know is what I've read in Columbia, to be honest with you, is that they are looking to take those cases in-house, pay somebody a salary to do those, and not have to um, take the hit every time one of those cases rolls in because you don't know when they're going to roll in. Right. So I think from that point of view, sure, I, I think it makes sense. Okay. Um, and what – so – I'm wondering why do you keep doing what you do with a, uh, being a public defender? You could make more money doing something else. The money's not going up. It's sounds like really challenging work. Why why do you keep doing it? I mean, I, I can't speak to everybody else. Uh, you know, the money's not bad. You know, I mean, we live okay uh, compared to what everybody else makes. Our, our salary is pretty average for for the, for the area. So. So to say that we're living in poverty, <laughs> right? So that stereotype's not yeah, not the case. We're not. I I, I do it because I, I I just enjoy it. I, I truly enjoy the pace. I enjoy the challenges. I, I I get a lot of satisfaction out of it, and I get a lot of frustration out of it. I I don't know if you know maybe I like the frustration more than satisfaction some days, but it it gets me up in the morning, keeps me going. I'm 62 years old, and I I can't ever see stopping. What's what are, what's frustrating about it? What's what are the frustrations? You know, a lot of the frustrations come from, well, my, my, my number one pet peeve is, is people have a stereotypical image of public defenders. What, what is that stereotypical image? Are they just underpaid, uh, overworked, can't really, don't have time to... Well, let's start with the public pretender. Right. Deal. I, I, I don't want a public defender. I want a real attorney. Mm-hmm. Nothing gets my blood boiling more than that. Because people don't understand that that we do more criminal defense cases than anybody around. We're in court every day. We have our finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in the courthouse, in the prosecutor's office, on the bench, in the clerk's office, everywhere. We know what's going on. We do the cases. We know what to expect. But they think that somebody that does five criminal cases a year and it been because they're a private attorney and charges a lot of more, a lot of money, it's going to do a better job. That frustrates me. Okay. I fight that every day I can. They're just that perception. That, that perception. Yeah. Okay. Um, what do you? I mean, what what is what's rewarding about the job? Can you think of any cases where somebody was was not guilty of something and you got them off? Was that 
Can you think of any stories or you can leave out names, but <laughs> which one? You know, very very simple uh, domestic violence case. Uh, a young a young couple, early twenties, uh, that I tried last week. Uh, they got into an argument. They have a an eight month old child. He was working long hours. She had gone off some medication she was on. Uh, had some issues. Uh, she wound up calling the police. That they had a, they had a fight. She called the police. Well, the next thing you know, because when police come to a domestic violence call, there's a mandatory arrest. He gets arrested. Of course, it's a Friday night, so he doesn't appear in front of a judge until Monday morning. He spends a weekend in jail. They come to court on Monday morning. The court issues a no-contact order, so they have to live apart for the next two to three months while they can get a trial. Uh, she immediately realizes that what she said that night wasn't quite what happened. She may have overreacted, she may have misinterpreted, and she may have expanded on it. In any event, they wanted the case dropped from the get-go, they being both my client and the alleged victim, his wife. Of course, it's out of their hands, they can't drop it. Um, you know, we, we, we went to trial last week and, and you know, we, it was just a quick day-long trial in district court, uh, six jurors, and, uh, you know, you get a not guilty. Did, did the prosecution want to proceed with the case, or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Even, even though both sides wanted it dropped. Well, clearly the defense always wanted right, it dropped. Right, the defense dropped, but the... But the victim wanted, yeah, the victim did not want to proceed, but they... You know, there's dynamics, I guess, in, in domestic violence that even I don't understand because they tell me that all the time. But in any event, they proceed because they have adequate evidence to get a conviction. I mean, she had written a statement that he done, had done this. She had given statements to the police. She had a scrape on her shoulder. There was physical evidence to support it. Uh, but when the jury heard the story, uh, they, they, they acquitted. And, you know, it, shortly after that, I mean, the judge says, okay, you know, Mr. Defendant, you're free to go. Uh, and the wife is there. She says, can I hug my husband now? And the judge goes, you can do whatever you want now. Uh, there's, there's no more no contact. And, you know, they, 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 they cried. They had a big hug. They were all very happy. And, and you know, that, that, that keeps you going for another day. Okay. So just little things like that. Okay. So there was a Ray Spencer, Vancouver uh, police detective who was erroneously charged and convicted of molesting his children, essentially. That, that, that case, it got, uh, went to appeal, it was overturned. I understand it's been appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, but I'm wondering, is that how- That being the, the civil case. The his civil case. His, his, his conviction has been thrown because out. Because he pled guilty to the charges. Right. Okay. Right, so his, he pled guilty, yeah. So, that, so it's still winding its way through the courts, but I'm wondering how rare is this? Is this really that rare, the thing with Ray Spencer? Well, what, what part of the thing was Ray Spencer? I mean, Just him being erroneously convicted. Uh, an innocent man pleading guilty? Yeah, how often does that he happen? He wasn't convicted. He pled guilty. Right. That happens a lot. Right. Because with mandatory sentencing guidelines and uh, the ability of the prosecutor to charge multiple counts to raise an offender score, sometimes your risk of going to trial uh, becomes too great. So, I mean, it, it, 
it's like a casino sometimes. You're basically playing your odds. Do you want to go to trial and risk never seeing your family again, or do you want to take a deal and be out in two or three years? Um, you know, I know it sounds kind of callous, but rarely do you get into a discussion about whether or not the person actually did it. I like to frame my conversations with my clients as whether or not the state has sufficient evidence to support a finding of guilt. Um, because it doesn't get you anywhere when you ask somebody if they did it, because if they said they didn't, you think they're lying. And it, so, so why, why go down that road? So it's really just a question of evidence and whether or not it's... That's, that's the only way I've been able to survive all these years is to look at, at it clinically. Does the state have sufficient evidence to, to convict? Can we keep some of that evidence out? Can we soften some of the blow with some of that evidence? Can we negotiate a better result? And then, can we, and then can we, we quantify our, our odds at every step of the way and make a decision. Is that good? Is that way? Because you think about well, when you good. talk well, to you kid, say good. I say good, but you think about like as a kid, you're taught about how the legal system works, and you have this really simplified version of, oh, right and wrong, and justice, and you did this and you didn't do this. Is that, is that, is that? I mean, would it could it be better? Is this an ideal way just to be looking at evidence and look at the odds and look at what the state can do, what the state can't do, or is there, would it be a more ideal form? Of, I, I can't think of a better way. Okay, the, bur- the burdens on the state. The state wants to lock somebody up. They have to prove with admissible evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody's guilty. If they can do that, I'm, I'm fine with it. As long mm-hmm. as the playing field is level and the resources available to both sides are equal. Okay. I'm fine with that system. So th- I suppose the final question I have is, so if they do go ahead and create an in-house public defender with a county or at some government level, would you be interested in applying for that job? If the job opened up? They didn't open up a job. I thought they just appointed somebody. Right, but would you seek that appointment? Well, I, I, if if the job became available, I would clearly apply for it. Okay, interesting. But, but I'm not here because I'm an applicant for right. anything. <laughs> sure. Well, they haven't even created it yet, I, or I, they I, might not. So yeah. Well, yeah. Great. I think that's all the questions I have. All right. So now we are sitting down with, uh, I guess. Current city council, yes. uh, councilwoman, and uh, candidate for Vancouver mayor, Anne McInerney Ogle. And I, I got to say, I was, I was, re- I, this morning I read through some of our archive stories and uh, just put your name in there. And man, you have a long career of being active in town, not only like a really decorated teacher, um, but you um, were, a, I, I guess, a neighborhood, a neighborhood activist, neighborhood organizer. Advocate, advocate, yes, advocate, advocate. All of those. I was a neighborhood leader for oh, 25 years. <laughs> wow. I have to say, my favorite headline or my favorite uh, lead that I found in any of those stories was from 2014, and it was about uh, cracking down on crime in the Shumway neighborhood. Am I saying that right? Oh yeah, Shumway, the Shumway. massage parlor. Yeah, the massage a, spa. This head or the this lead was if crime lurks in the hedges, Anne McInerney Ogle wants to trim those hedges. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Really I don't like that. Remember that. That's good. That's <laughs> I really good. like that. Well, is that a Marissa Harshman story? I, I, she, it might have been. It was a little corner of the world about 39th and I-5, uh, that off-ramp, on-ramp right there, has a few very small, just a little corner, and the maybe four businesses in there, and the neighbors were noticing some very interesting activity. Mm. And so actually the neighbors 
got together on it and then came to a neighborhood meeting and asked for some help and said, you know, if people are going to go in for uh, reflexology, you usually pay by the half hour. Why don't we just leave <laughs> after 15 minutes? Mm. And why are people parking down the street and walking <laughs> through the parking lot to get to? So it was... A very interesting opportunity. Our neighborhood police officer, NPO Drew Russell, uh, asked me one morning, uh, I was at my computer, and showed up on the screen, do you want to go for a ride? And I, sure, I'd like to go for a ride along. Well, he was waiting outside my house. And we were doing, and uh, we were taking Commander Foster and Drew Russell, were putting on a sting for a Sunday morning raid on this massage parlor. And it was fantastic because everything got nailed down and we solved part of the problem we j for Shumway. We kind of moved it to the county, and now the county has to work on it. But the police department has been wonderful about investigating, looking at it, checking the business license, checking the businesses, watching it, and collecting information from the neighborhoods. And I think that's the big part. As I came up through the neighborhoods, neighbors look after each other. Mm -hmm. And they're watching, and they, they want to help. And I think as we look at whether it's a park or sidewalks or putting in ADA ramps or looking out for businesses that are not appropriate in a neighborhood or graffiti, all of that stuff happens at the neighborhoods. And with 60-plus neighborhoods, we're very fortunate to have lots of people who volunteer and help. And they're always calling, whether it's a basketball hoop that's down over at a park or whether we have potholes or lights are out or parks that are vandalized. That's where everything happens. So that I came up through the neighborhoods, and that, that was wonderful. A great experience. How long have you lived in Vancouver for? 37 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Terry and I got married in 1980 found a little home in the Shumway neighborhood and in fact he's he's working this morning repairing one of those double hung windows where the 50 pound weights are off so mm, it's an yep. old Cape Cod <laughs> 1940 uh, Cape Cod that cool. Don Stewart built we live in the Arneda neighborhood. Oh, so. you're just down the road yeah, from us. Yeah, okay. I love that part okay. of town. So It is. Um, so what drew you to that kind of public service then? Hmm... Well, I'm one of seven children, and so in our family, we were always helping some way, whether it was through Girl Scouts or church or school. So when I went to college, helped in college, did um, student, I was I'm a retired math teacher. So in college, we were student teachers, and we had a state student organization, and I became the president of that organization. Always kind of helping, looking over your shoulder to see what you can do, bend over, pick up the litter, or, or throw something away, or help the little old lady across the street, usually. It's a, a child. And it was just part of our family. And I married a gentleman who had the same instinct. His family, Terry's family, is from Vancouver. So his mother, Margaret, and Aunt Mary helped with the first Fourth of July way long ago. And so they were active in Vancouver in the 4th of July in the arts festivals, the art community back in the 40s, 50s, 60s. So those, we are just part of, it's just part of us. 
So how long have you wanted to be mayor for? <laughs> <laughs> Two years, I think. <laughs> That's it. That, really? was, that wasn't that wasn't really on my on my list of things to accomplish. My when I and I know you probably know this already, but in my after serving on the planning commission, I ran for council, made it through the primary, but lost in the general. Next time, made it through the primary, lost in the general. So in 2013, Terry asked, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> so, let's try it one more time. Made it through the primary, made it through the general, and followed Mayor Pro Tem Larry Smith around um, because Larry was helping in the community. I, it's wonderful that he's one of our first citizens now. But he was out not only helping with the military, but helping with parks, helping with neighborhood activities, cutting ribbons. And I was just intrigued by what Larry was doing. So I thought, well, maybe that's the way to go. And when Larry said he wasn't going to run again, there was an opportunity to be a mayor pro tem. And Mayor Tim asked. My colleagues voted me in. And it was just very easy to continue going down that path. And then when my colleagues decided that they were not going to run for mayor, okay, maybe this is a new path, a new opportunity. So so you're partway through your council seat, correct? Right, years. Okay. right, okay. right. So, so remind me, there will be a special election for your seat if you win. No, the no. person okay. runs, right. So the way the charter changed, any one of the council members that runs for mayor has to announce that they're not going to run for their seat Okay. For re-election, they have to resign from that seat mm -hmm. opening to run for mayor. So I made that announcement. That opened it up, and so now you have candidates running for my, oh, my right. seat. Oh, right. Correct. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So was it? It's if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like the decision to run was based on the opportunity that there was almost like a just a vacancy created, not necessarily like a real drive to be the mayor and be the one in charge of the city. Do you know <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying? That's, that's about right. When Tim chose not to run for mayor, we obviously knew that there was an opening. Who are the most senior around the table? who have the experience to run, mm -hmm. and they chose not to. So having the experience as Mayor Pro Tem, knowing what that's all about, it, it, it felt very easy for me to make that decision. I'd been involved in the neighborhoods for 30-plus years. Um, planning commission, counselor, mayor pro tem, that all gave me the experience of what does it take to be the mayor? Because people confuse the city of Vancouver's mayor from the Portland's mayor. Two, oh, diff really? two <laughs> different opportunities. That's what they call a strong mayor who takes over as right. the leader and hires and fires and appoints and moves people around. That's not Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Vancouver is what they call a, w a weak mayor. Mm -hmm. And we have a strong city manager who runs everything. We hire one person. We hire Eric. Mm -hmm. But that means the mayor's role is very different than the Portland's mayor. The mayor's role in Vancouver is to collaborate, to sit down and discuss with neighbors, with businesses, with different organizations about how do we solve the problems and keep Vancouver moving forward and then bring those issues back to my colleagues and mm -hmm. have you heard about this? Have you read this? Are you going to go to this conference? Let's go together. Let's figure this out. Will you come with me mm -hmm. to this neighborhood? Can you come with me to the forum? What do we know 
and then how do we move it mm -hmm. forward into the strategic plan and such. So you guys set policy and oh, then the yes. manager enacts it. Exactly. So In fact, I'm the chair of what we call the strategic plan. So we have 52 different action items that the council said, these are our policies, let's move forward with them. And we gave that responsibility to Eric and his staff. And then every six months we sit down and look at those action items to determine how are we doing? Mm -hmm. Do we have some green, yay, we're making progress, yellow, slow. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple reds that we <laughs> weren't right. moving on. So we evaluate ourselves. So let's talk about this. Uh, let's look in the crystal ball a little bit if we can. As mayor, looking down the road to what Vancouver is. Um, see, this is what I was talking about when I said you can start over at any sure. point you want to. Sure. Um, so looking ahead, at, um, should you get elected, what do you imagine that you want to start working on? And what kind of things are coming up in the city's future that need to be addressed? Well, many of the things to work on, we've already started working on. So, waterfront development, huge project. Hope to continue that moving forward. The waterfront park is ours. Everything behind the sidewalk is the private company, the Graymore development. And so we want that project to keep moving forward with all of the different pieces that surround it. Columbia Tech Center and Pack Trust have a huge, wonderful area out in East Vancouver. They've been rebuilding parks out there for a water feature. Um, they've had, they have six concerts out there every Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And that new hub that they've created, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a blow-up uh, shelter out there for them in case of rain. And we're looking at making that a permanent area, mm. kind of that east side Esther Short Park hub. Mm. Be, we had over 3,500 people every Sunday night gathering there for those free concerts. But you remember, we have several different quarries out there. And they're starting to be developed. How do we work with uh, Columbia Tech Center to finish that huge area? But then we also have the quarry down off of 14 overlooking the Columbia River and it slides up the hill and at the top you have Camas. Mm -hmm. So that's a collaboration piece. But then north we have section 30 up 192nd across from the old Costco, the Costco out there. That's another quarry. So we have all these different opportunities on the far east side. And then of course we have Tower Mall, how exciting. So we bought those 12 acres of the 25 in that triangle and bordering on Mill Plain Divine and MacArthur. Mm -hmm. So how do we turn those 12 acres from asphalt into a hub, a center where you have village, you have retail, you have housing above, mixed use, um, maybe some affordable housing, but we also have 13 acres around us to work with those owners to create a new center. The exciting part about it is CTRAN just approved the opportunity to move forward on the new bus rapid transit cent, mm -hmm. um, train, mm -hmm. bus rapid transit bus system, not train. And that's going to go across <laughs> Mill Plain, right? It is, is that where they're because Mill Plain the had the, the ridership that 99 didn't. I was so, really surprised by that. Well, it's those express buses. So the feds don't allow us to count when we put people on the express bus and they don't stop in Vancouver. They go directly to Portland. We don't get to count them. Mm 
I think the numbers would have been higher if that had been the stop, if they had had a stop in downtown. But as it looks like, it was almost half of what Mill Plain is. So it looks like we'll be looking forward to a second BRT and making Mill Plain the north edge of Tower Mall, New Village. We'll have to come up with a great name for that. <laughs> Um, so with all of that development, obviously one of the significant things, the significant issues facing Clark County right now and the city of Vancouver are, is affordable housing. That's so right. how do you, so talk to us a little bit about your vision uh, for affordable housing in Clark, in Vancouver. And then also how do you balance all of that development with the need for affordable housing and all of that excitement with the need to serve the low-income population in okay. Vancouver. So, of course, on that spectrum of income, you have very little to AMI, average medium income. Affordable housing tends to be at that upper end of that spectrum where they can afford something. And so with the Affordable Housing Fund, we're hoping to get that portion handled with that $42 million. So the applications have come in. We looked at kind of the criteria for some of the applications. We were going to make that decision next Monday. We've postponed that for a couple of weeks to make sure that we're getting all of the units that we can for that amount of money for the, just this first year. But it looks like we have great partnerships in moving forward in preventing homeless um, and lose, losing their homes in that prevention portion, but actually helping people to stay in their homes and remodel the roofs and the water heaters and those types of things to stay in and then build some new because part of that conversation is if we're going to give money out for sheltering, we want to make sure we have sheltering for women. That has been our goal for several years. So that's kind of the affordable housing piece and a lot of partnerships going on with that. It's the bottom portion that we're struggling with. We know we need to move the day center out of Friends of the Carpenter. That is not working well, and they have been tremendous partners with us, and we'll keep them as long as we need them. Bless their hearts there. We have that contract till the end of December. And that was a pretty big construction project out there. I mean, that added a pretty decent-sized room to Friends of the Carpenter. Well, yes, that little section where they can come in out of the cold, get their cell phones get their mail have those case manager conversations and we, but we could never get the sewer piece right we needed that easement for the toilets and the showers and the laundry piece and we ha weren't able to get that so we're going to have to bite the bullet and we are actively looking right now for a different location for that shelter we've had lots of conversations with property owners and nonprofits and such we thought we had one we lost it kind of at the last minute and that will that was there's been some community pushback about the right place to put this exactly, thing right exactly it seems and I am I'm not trying to let like Vancouver or anybody in the community off the hook but like every city of uh, I think every city that I've seen that has had this conversation about where do we put resources for the homeless, the neighborhoods are never in favor of having it built next to them. It's hard to blame them, but then at the same time, it's like, well, it's got to go somewhere. Sure. And, and we had a second site. And again, the second site looked really promising because we were on a... Um, 
We were on a BRT line, so we had good transit. We had all sorts of wonderful opportunities. But in that case, it wasn't the residential neighbors around. It was the commercial neighbors around that didn't want it in their neighborhood. So we're not going to make everyone happy. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to. We have that need to solve the problem. So we'll keep working. We'll find it. We'll make it work. And then bring in the nonprofits to operate it and maintain it because that's not our role. We can help move forward and streamline permitting and help people use some of the affordable housing task force money in that little 2.3% down there at the bottom. But it, we don't operate it. So we have to have the partnership either from the Vancouver Housing Authority or from SHARE or from any of the faith-based organizations. And in fact, Saturday, the faith-based group are getting together um, different churches and such over at St. Joe's to have that conversation is what is their role. And we've had two or three churches already start turning their basements and different facilities into sheltering. Mm So it's that bottom group, is that homeless group that don't have the income for the affordable housing. How do we provide the daycare and the shelter? Very different from that upper housing piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're working on it, but we haven't solved it. But as we've been out and about in all, you know, whether it was Omaha, Nebraska, or Minneapolis, or St. Paul, they're struggling with the same issues. Mm-hmm. That how do you shelter? When we were in Minneapolis, we were thinking, where is where are your homeless? Well, they have skywalks between the buildings, so the people are not down on the street. The homeless are up in the skywalks, mm. and I thought, whoa, that's interesting because the skywalks are open but they're sheltered and so that's where the homeless were interesting yeah it was so so getting back to the the second piece of that question then then what challenges are there going to be as you have development at the waterfront you know how do you how do you avoid becoming a gentrified mess here in Clark (laughs) County (laughs) a gentrified mess well I think that gentrification um Oh, the west side is an interesting side because we have Fruit Valley and we have Rosemere. And our son is out looking at different opportunities. How does he, where does he go to afford a home? But it was the same thing Terry and I found back in 1980. Where do you go to afford a home? Do you go, because I was teaching across the river. Terry was teaching up in Battleground. And we couldn't afford Portland. So we moved to Vancouver, where we could find some place to afford a home. Our son and other individuals are doing the same thing. They are taking that, where can I afford to live? How much can I stretch my budget and then redo homes? In Shumway, we had 17 empty homes during the recession. And all but two of them are purchased and have families in them. So when we we have a couple homes that haven't sold for a while, they're asking a lot of money for them. Oh yeah. So maybe the price will come down. But across I-5 into Rose Village, the homes are going like wildfire. The prices are a little bit lower. I was down in Fruit Valley on a, a neighbor on watch patrol and in 24 hours the sign went up and the sign came down. Going like wildfire because it's an opportunity, but who's moving in? Young families, young couples are coming in. Is that gentrification? 
it's a turnover in the neighborhood. That is absolutely for sure. It had been a long time since we had ch- had babies at the park. Now we have toddlers everywhere. It's been a long time in Rosemere and Fruit Valley since they had young couples and children playing in the park. There were 3,000 of them at the Friday night movie. Uh, you were also playing Lego Batman. Yes. So let's well, be you clear. Can't, you can't go wrong. <laughs> so you were in the sleeping bag over on this side there. <laughs> So I, I don't know if it's gentrification or if it's the opportunity for new families to come in and afford what they can afford. And our home has flipped three times in its lifetime. Three different families were there. But we're noticing the same around us. Old 1940s home are on their fifth family now. Mm-hmm. So we, I can't tell the... Um, I can't tell Troy to keep the prices down on things. Mm-hmm. You know, the market rate goes <laughs> it does all over does. the place. It does. But yeah. it's interesting that Washougal now sees us as a bedroom community. And mm-hmm. Woodland sees us, or Washougal is our bedroom community, and Woodland is our bedroom community. People are traveling to Woodland and Washougal so they can work and live or work in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and so they're scooting out. My coworker Patty and Hastings and I, this is totally an aside, but we were uh, just looking at some uh, commuting statistics for the different cities in Clark County. Right. And of the, of the um, population, the working population in Battleground, 92% of it commuted out of town to go work somewhere else. I'm not surprised. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's like, man, I can't imagine what their, their tax base is. It's I just got to be growth-based. I, I have a booth at Farmer's Market, and so people stop by and we chat. And I'll, they say, oh, I can't vote for you. I live in the center, but we come down to the market. Uh-huh. I said, you come all the way from the center down to the market. Wow. Oh, yeah, we do it all the time. So it's no big thing. They, that's mm-hmm. just part. I asked them, do you cross over the bridge and go to Portland? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but we are this the new hub. The, so they have the Vancouver Symphony that they went to. Mm-hmm. They have all the events at Esther Shore Park. They have our Farmer's Market. But we're starting Farmer's Market moved out to Columbia Tech Center for yeah. a couple opportunities. Seems like that's working well for yes, them. Yes, and so people are looking at CTC as an, a kind of an east side mm. hub of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll have a central with mm-hmm. a, a new hub and concerts at Tower Mall. So I feel like we could spend all day talking about this. I want to start to wrap up a little, but I want to see if you could tell me just as quick as you could the maybe the handful of top issues that you forecast will be on uh, the city of Vancouver's uh, to-do list in the next four years, five years. <laughs> oh my gosh. The I-5 bridge will be the number one issue. I would just like to mention that Anne brought up Binder and turned to the page of this question. So, <laughs> <Right>. as... <laughs> so, so what? I, let me go ahead and, and you say, can you've, feel... You've you... come with the biggest, like the most, you're probably the most prepared of any of the guests we've had on here. <laughs> People might bring in like a sheet of paper or a um, notebook, but nobody has brought in a three-ring binder. This is impressive. And you may want to cut this from your pro- – but for the last 23 weeks, uh-huh. when I set up a booth at Farmer's Market, I would write an issue for that weekend. Mm. And so if someone says, well, what is your issue on fireworks? We can go to week 14 and we can find the issue on fireworks, what oh. it was and what uh, my – my approach to it, how I uh, made my decision. 
a very former teacher of you. Yes, by the way. I know. <laughs> God, you could market these. You could teach people how to be this organized. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> But anyway. but what? <laughs> going back to your question, the yeah. big the big issues. Yes, the I five bridge will still be a huge issue. Mm-hmm. We're not going to solve it in four or five years. Homelessness and housing, affordable housing on that spectrum, will continue to be a big piece for us. The economy. We are doing gangbusters with lots of different um, projects with Columbia River Economic Development Council and our economic folks. Our folks take care of the little businesses. CREDC takes care of the big businesses. And we're balancing that so that we have the jobs to keep people happy on this side of the world and keep our economy moving forward. I think if we can keep our balanced budget, it's going to be tough because we're not getting the support from the federal government. From the feds to the state, from the state to us, we're not getting that support. We're still sitting without a capital budget right now. Mm-hmm. We're sort of feeling that we're on our own, mm-hmm. that we have to fund our own projects. That's why you had the Transportation Benefit District where we funded our streets. And that's why you had the police initiative to be funding our officers. We thought we were going to get that $1.3 million fire truck from the feds. We had the best project, top five in the nation. It's August. We haven't gotten it yet. Mm. We're on our own economically, and so we're doing everything we can with our business partners to make sure we stay economically healthy. So between the business, housing, and our neighborhoods with that housing piece, and then the economy. Mm. Those are the three biggies, and we are taking baby steps nothing fantastic nothing you know out of the normal is there an honorable mention on that list oh sure i think it's the relationships the 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 collaboration the relationships between the governmental agencies the relationships between the people making sure our cultural relationships are good that whole incident um across the nation at charlottesville has taken us have We get real emotional about this right now because it's easy to have it happen. It's difficult to make sure it doesn't happen, and Mm -hmm. we don't want it to happen in our our little paradise here. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the current. How are people feeling, and can we keep the joy moving forward? Mm. Well, I think we can call it an interview there. Oh, good. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. You bet. Absolutely. And now... We turn to our probably the most familiar and funnest part of the pro- funnest part of the podcast, which is Ashley's Corner. I still don't know how we came up with that name. I don't think we ever actually officially settled on it. It's it just kind of happened. I do sit in a corner. No, you don't. You're sitting in the middle of the room. No, it, it, oh. at my desk. <laughs> yeah, my you... desk is in a corner. <laughs> I, I, I live in a corner. No, that's true. Your desk is in a corner, isn't <laughs> yes. it? Huh. I didn't think of that. <laughs> that's what wow. I thought we were referring to. I never knew what we were referring to. That's a lot of what this podcast is, not knowing. No, it, it is very <laughs> avant-garde and free verse. It's true. Yeah. It's like it's like a it's like a much more boring version of like a, a going to a a rap battle, mm. like a freestyle rap battle. Mm. But rather than spitting sick beats, I just sit here and ramble on to nonsense. It should be sick rhymes. Sick rhyme. Oh, yeah. It would be sick rhymes, huh? Because beatboxing would be sick beats. They do have big beatboxing challenges, though, where you, like, try to outbeatbox each other. That's true. God, as a hip-hop fan, I'm ashamed of myself right now. 
<laughs> Good lord. Yeah. Anyway. That aside. Shifting. Is there any... Can I just say, like, I don't know if this is on your radar for this mm-hmm. weekend, but my God, there is some hip hop coming to Portland yeah. that I want to see so bad. Yeah. The and mm-hmm. Nas, freaking Nas is coming right. to town. Yeah, that's oh. this weekend. I've loved that guy's music since Illmatic. Yeah. Since I used to get in trouble for listening to his music. <laughs> well, and they just announced uh, Tyler, the creator, is coming in November. Whoa. Um, And yeah, they're like hip hop is coming to portland it's nice that's cool that is yeah. that is hip mm-hmm. so anyway that aside um tell me what you got what, what do we what do we have to look forward to it's a shifting shade from hip-hop to uh this weekend is the 20th annual vancouver wine and jazz festival ah. so it takes place every year in esther short park it kind of has grown up with esther short park because esther short park used to not really be a nice beautiful outdoor living room for downtown vancouver it used to be kind of you know um not a place you'd a visit drug den? yeah was it really a drug den well i don't know if it, i oh. i don't want to do hearsay but it wasn't it wasn't what it is today oh. and so uh the jazz fest has kind of tried to make it you know an annual summer event of come out and listen to some great jazz and blues musicians from mm-hmm. that are national recognized acts a lot of them are award-winning grammy award-winning um not or nominated musicians and bands wow. um you know how's the wine the wine is from around. You get California wine. You get Washington wine. You mm. see some um, local and regional artists, uh-huh. usually with a lot of music and jazz-themed art, so it kind of all goes together. Mm. Um, they set out at the pavilion in Esther Short Park and have you know, a big soundstage, and you can just lay in the grass and just listen to some, some great musicians jam. That's cool. Yeah. So like uh, this year, they're definitely kind of emphasizing some blues musicians. They have um, kind of the big headliner is John Mayall, who um, is considered uh, kind of the British blues godfather. Um, He performed with a lot of really famous guitarists. They all kind of came through his band, like Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. What does he play or does he sing? He He plays guitar and harmonica and he plays a bunch of different. He's kind of a multi instrumentalist and stuff gotcha. um, yeah so he's kind he's kind of a big kind of deal in uh-huh. in the blues world in the jazz world gotcha. um there's also a singer songwriter ruthie foster she'll play friday night hmm. um she's a, a award-winning blues guitarist she sings a lot of folk music as well um has kind of this really powerful voice um there's also the uh uh, famed blues guitarist Ronnie Baker Brooks. He's the son of I forget his father's name. Another kind of he's from Chicago, so the land of of the mm, blues and the jazz, mm-hmm. and has grown up in that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And is a really really strong guitarist. There's also the uh, Rippingtons, which is a jazz um, group that has been nominated for a couple Grammy awards. And there's also this young rising um, jazz saxophonist called Grace Kelly, and she does a really fun like electric live performance. So. Dang. Yeah, so it's Friday through Sunday. Um, it's sixty dollars if you want to attend all three days. It's twenty-five to thirty-five depending on which day you go. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it's you know it's a really nice time of especially with the the summer weather of just kind of relaxing in the park and listening to good getting, sounds. Getting classy drunk. <laughs> some wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if that's not your thing, there is also pirates in the plaza out in Washougal. Pirates are taking over Washougal on Saturday. <laughs> what is that? What does it mean? So this is, I think, the 
second or third year they've done this. And it's actually uh-huh. a fundraiser for Interfaith Treasure House and their backpack program. Uh-huh. So they're encouraging attendees to bring some booty to donate. Oh, okay. Like snacks and supplies. That's the opposite of what pirates do. Pirates don't give. Pirates take. <laughs> <laughs> they're taking from your pantry and giving it to backpacks. Oh. <laughs> so it'll take place in the Reflection Plaza in downtown Washougal on Saturday from 4 to 10. They're going to have... Um, Pirate music with um, the bilge rats and the pirates, um, dancing, sword fighting, sword fighting, a grog garden instead of a beer garden. Mm. You gotta drink grog. Everyone's encouraged to wear their eye patches and their parrots and their pirate hats mm. mm-hmm. and their bandanas, um, and yeah, kind of have a fun piratey themed time on Saturday. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Something tells me there's going to be a lot of guy liner happening at this thing. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're Johnny Depp inspiration. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, if you want to win the contum co- costume contest, you got to go I think all in. I just I just now made the correlation in my mind of how much the guys from Motley Crue actually looked like pirates. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so you just hang out and drink and listen to music, but yeah. you're dressed as pirates. Well, yeah, and there'll be kids' activities. Like, it's uh, definitely a family-friendly uh, event. Huh. They'll be juggling and, and uh, different dancing and, and fun things like that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, also on Saturday in downtown Camas is the Camas Vintage and Art Fair. It's from 9 to 3 p.m. Um, it's free uh you can just browse through and do some treasure hunting of antiques um there will also be artists showcasing their artwork and it's fun because it takes place in downtown camas so the nice pretty tree lime street they just set up a bunch of really interesting vendor booths and things it's very quaint down there isn't it yeah so if you if you need some like rusty treasure if you're really looking for that that vintage dresser or antiqued or um half rusting old sign yeah yeah Got to you. Got to update your your decor in in your living room or God, something. My mom would lose it at a thing like that. Yeah, it's it's a popular. I bet. I yeah. bet it is. So that's huh. that's a fun annual thing that Th- happens. Those are pretty good options. Yeah, there's also if you want to venture over to Portland, um, starting actually Thursday uh, through Saturday, there is the Festa Italia Portland. Um, so it's a big celebration celebration of Italian Americans and Italian culture, and there'll be opera and puppet shows and pizza and singers and Euro pop, and it all takes place in Pioneer Courthouse Square, and it's a free admission. It's from like 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. I think huh. every day. Cool. Mm-hmm. And then I have an excuse if you want to get out to the beach this weekend too. I actually do want to get there. Can I just say, like, there are so many things happening this weekend that I really want to go mm-hmm. do. I am like, I wish there were like four of me to experience all the <laughs> things that are happening this weekend. Yeah. But what's happening at the beach? Because I'm, I, you're, I am, you are going to be hard pressed to convince me to not go to uh, what is it, the Paps thing that the week is putting yeah, on? Yeah. That's the festival I was alluding to earlier. Yes, it's it's it's, a hard, it's Music Fest Northwest presents Project Paps. God, that was good. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you have that written down or did you just no, memorize I, that? No, it's in my head. Man, I mean, they're having, well, first off, bravo. <laughs> but I mean, like Spoon and Iggy Pop. Yeah. And like I said, Niles and DeAntwood. Mm-hmm. Um, God, those are mm-hmm. Uh There's also good. Father John Misty. Yeah. Uh, there's who, Beck. Who there's... I've heard Father John Misty is super pretentious in real life. Uh-huh. And Beck, very boring live show. Huh? I was a big fan of Beck until I saw him in concert. And then I was like, I actually want to take a nap. Huh? 
Yeah. Teach his own. It's true. It's mm-hmm. true. But I digress. Yeah. I totally threw you off track, didn't I? <laughs> yes. So out at Long Beach Peninsula, Long uh-huh. Beach, Washington, there is the Washington State International Kite Festival that will wrap up oh, the end of this yeah. weekend. That's pretty rad. Yeah. So um, like Friday. Yeah. Friday night, they'll do some nighted light or kited, lighted, kited flying, night flying. Bah. <laughs> lighted kite night flying? Yes. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So Friday night, they'll do some fireworks. They'll do some kites that are lit up and flying through the beach or through the sky. Um, it basically, it takes place all this week through the um, Sunday. Mm. Activities always start around 10 a.m., but you can just kind of show up whenever. I've never in my life seen such big kites. Yeah. Like they were anchored to two trucks all around them. I mean, they're huge. It's crazy. Yeah. So there's massive ones. There's also like really tiny ones that you do for like tricks and sport flying. They You're holding ha- your fingers up about like two inches yeah. apart. Yeah. You can do a two. There's such a thing as a two inch kite. Yes. I didn't there's think There's tiny of, kites. How would that even fly? That would be, <laughs> that was a good answer. <laughs> shrug. <laughs> that would be hilarious to just, all you flow, flew was just like a little tiny kite. Yeah. They make little tiny kites. Huh. All you need is a little bit of air movement. I mean, that's how wind. Yeah, yeah. Air movement. See, I would think. (laughs) (laughs) I would think that like a tiny kite, like the string would be too heavy for it. Well, I mean, it it depends, right? Maybe you need to go and experiment. God, I'm such a loser in the (laughs) kite world. I'm a kite novice. Yeah, there's a kite ballet. There's indoor kite flying. There's something called like a raku battle where you have kites that are trying to basically... Kite fight? Yeah, they're trying to like uh, snap the strings of other kites. Oh, if some dude did that, that, I'd beat them up. So they break. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh, so you could be a kite bully. Well, yeah, but it's all supposed to be part of a sanctioned competition. It's more uh, like more like um, uh, flag football. Oh, uh, or like kite martial arts. Yeah. KMA. <laughs> exactly. Gotcha. So this will all be taking place on on Long Beach. Um, so it'll be busy, but it'll be uh, really visually fun. It's yeah. If you haven't been, it's worth going to. Yeah, and make sure to stop by the kite museum too in Long Beach. Um, you can see a bunch of exhibits of different kites from all over the world. They also have activities, and it's a good place to get all the information about what's happening. Mm. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that's kind of your weekend. Yeah, that's a really good one. Mm-hmm. I've got to say, is the the kite thing sounds very nice, but still not convinced to not go see Nas. <laughs> and the other thing I think is happening this weekend, yeah, tomorrow, mm-hmm. or is it the day after? But Alene Casino is having like a big, a big thing, a big to do for the um, uh, Floyd Mayweather yeah. and Conor McGregor fight, yeah. which is going to be a silly fight. It is. But powerful Misha Tate, my favorite female mm-hmm. MMA fighter of all time, is going to be there. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a bunch of venues in Clark County and Portland that are going to screen the fight. So uh-huh. if you don't want to watch it at home, you can go to one of those. Um, just Google around and That woman watch is so it. cool. I would go to that thing just to like awkwardly think of something to say to her (laughs) you're that much of a fan oh yeah she was awesome she's awesome she had a cool philosophy into it and how she like came to the sport was really rad and just to clarify the fight isn't happening at the casino the casino is showing it yes Yes. (laughs) for people who want to who want to see it elena is a nice casino and all but i don't think they got the money to bring in an event like that well they don't they haven't finished their convention center yet that's true Uh that's true i i can't imagine you're going to be watching that fight (laughs) 
No. Not caring is a perfectly legitimate response because this is going to be a really stupid fight. (laughs) Don't tell anybody I said that. Right. Anyway, that is good. Do we, is there anything big the following weekend that we should know about? Well, the following weekend is Labor Day weekend, which is always interesting because a lot of people just try to get out of town or just try to enjoy kind of the last bits of summer before, you know, school season really kicks up and, and other things happen. So a lot of places don't schedule that many events because they assume people just want to relax or barbecue or you know go for a hike or go camping Mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. like that um the only big event i know is that all the local wineries do kind of a food and wine pairing uh tour so you can go self-guided tour and visit them and try Ah. different snacks with wine just drinking yeah but i feel like we should tell these guys the sad news Happy for you, but sad for us <laughs> yeah. that after six long years of holding down the fort and being the events maven in Southwest Washington, dare I say it, the best events expert in Vancouver, <laughs> you're stepping down. Yeah. And you're going to be sending this podcast into a tailspin. I don't know if you listened to the podcast that Katie and I did when you weren't here, when she and I were trying to tell people what was going on. But, oh, man, we were so bad at it. <laughs> and we're going back to that. We're losing our expert. Yeah, well, it was it was time to move on and try some new challenges and sail away. I get that. I get that. <laughs> all, all good things must come to an end. It's true. Yeah, just like every good day, mm-hmm. a sunset must follow. Yes. Damn, that was nice. That was. Thank you. you. Should, you should print that on a shirt. I should. <laughs> I should. Well, you will be missed mm-hmm. uh, not only by this podcast, but by the rest of the paper, I'm sure. Yeah. So, But if you want to come back and just volunteer your time and let us know what <laughs> things are going on, Katie and I would love to have you. Oh, you'll figure something out. Ugh, it's going to be terrible. Thanks. Yeah. And I guess... I guess this is goodbye. Well, I'll just... At least on the podcast. Just sign out and say, uh, have a good weekend. Thank you. All right. That's an episode. Thanks for tuning in. And man, what a crazy week this has been. Um, Of course, obviously, in the news in the last two weeks, there's been just madness across the country. Um, I don't have to tell you, and frankly, I don't want to get into it. But even here locally, with the uh, the defacing of that Confederate monument up north, that sure riled a lot of folks. Um, And then... Um, the Forest Service just very recently announced its draft plan to give the nod to uh, um, proposed exploratory drilling plans up near Mount St. Helens. Environmentalists are not going to be happy about that one. FSEC just held its last public hearing on a permit for the Vancouver Energy Oil Terminal. That, of course, drew a whole bunch of strong feelings on both sides of that issue. The people who want to build it turned out in force. The environmentalists who don't want it built really turned out in force. In fact, there was an a cappella singing rendition by the Raging Grannies and a guy who screamed, and I mean screamed his testimony into the public record, it was nuts. It was definitely the most exciting public meeting I think I've ever been to. And then just today, we had a whole group of demonstrators uh, march on the Colombian's office. Yeah, they marched on our office. But these weren't the type of demonstrators that were like, 
these were not the Alex Jones types of demonstrators who are convinced that the mainstream media is out to ruin everything and sabotage this and destroy that. No, these people instead marched out to tell us we're doing a good job and to thank us for all our hard work. Man, that is gratifying. If you, um, if, if one of you or many of you, I hope many of you, um, are listening to this episode and you were the ones waving signs and smiling and chanting and thanking us outside of our offices, thank you. I gotta say, there are, um, I think there are a few jobs less thankless, or I, yeah, is that a thing? Less thankless? Usually the only time we hear from people is when we've screwed up, or they think we've screwed up, or they're just mad in general, and they want to just call and rail against us. And then I don't think I have to tell you what the general opinion is out there of the mainstream media in the world right now. But it's nice when somebody shows up to your office and says, hey, thanks for being around, and I appreciate your hard work. So, yeah, thank you guys for thanking us. It made my day all the better. Anyway, you can, as I'm sure you can probably recite by heart now, you can get this podcast at Stitcher, uh, at SoundCloud, on iTunes, at just about any podcast app you use to download your podcasts. You can reach out to Katie or myself all over, on Twitter, on Facebook, our emails. The podcast has its own email, podcast at Columbian.com. And please reach out anytime you feel. Tell us what you think. Tell us how we're doing. Give us some ideas to talk about. And then, as I say always, share the show with your friends. We'd be really grateful to get a few more listeners and maybe even a few comments and ratings on iTunes. Those really help. All right. um, Stay tuned and we will see you in just a couple weeks.